0: I've been so slack on putting these out like I, I was you know how I was always saying how um, I was we were on it and I was getting a show out every like every week and man like the last two months it's been like every third week <laughs> I'm lucky to get two out a month because it's just you know yeah I'm calling it summer vacation
1: hi everyone I'm Andrew and I'm Michael and this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey,
0: everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And I know we've been off, uh, off your airwaves for a little while, and uh, I guess that is the elephant in the room. And uh, I'm uh, thinking of this as kind of like, you know, summer vacation for Endurance Innovation. My kids are out of school. And uh, we're, our guests are, are getting a little bit difficult to book because they've they're, they're got travel plans and they're all over the place. So uh, we'll uh, release episodes in the summer whenever we can get interesting folks to come and talk to us. And today we have a very special guest. <laughs> it is my great pleasure to welcome back to the show, <laughs> Andrew Buckrell, <laughs> oh, <laughs> who is of man. course the, uh, the chief of uh, endurance innovation, but he has, been, uh, he has been MIA for the last little bit. Andrew, welcome back to the show.
1: Oh, that's, that's fully deserved. Um, but I thought one of the rules is you, you can't abuse guests. So
0: <laughs> you get, you're exempt
1: from that rule. I'm okay. Afraid. So I get the worst of both worlds then.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You don't get, you don't get the, uh, the benefit of, uh, of kid gloves on, uh, on your own show, man.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. Fully deserved. Um, yeah, it's been, life has been thrown a few curveballs and been quite busy, but, uh, thanks for, for carrying the torch with the, the show, Michael. It's been, uh, It's been good that you've had the time to to do as much (laughs) as you can here. And I mean, there's not really any excuse. It's just been, it's been tough, but uh, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, And I think we've got some interesting things to talk about today. So based on listener questions and other questionable fashion choices. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes before we get into questionable fashion choices and the the meme machine that is like cycling instagram uh this is a question that is has nothing to do about bikes but it touches on the two things that are kind of at the at the heart of endurance innovation and that is aerodynamics and heat transfer and this is something i've been thinking about for uh forever it's basically since uh since i i owned my first automobile and the question i always had is what is more fuel efficient, more economical to run your AC or to open up the windows? And I'm sure there's a break point at, at, uh, at a, there's a velocity break point at some point. And I couldn't think of a better human to put, put this question to than automotive engineer Andrew Buckrell. So here you go, Andrew, this is the first one for you today. At what point should I turn off the AC and open my windows?
1: Well, um, yeah, it is definitely an interesting question. I've heard those, uh, the conversations or the, the guesses where people say, oh, at a certain I wanted to say temperature. At a certain speed, you should uh, just basically uh, turn on your air conditioning. And it's hard to find good data. Like I don't, I don't know if anyone's really got a wind tunnel test of windows open versus window closed. Hmm. But uh, I've got a couple things that are interesting. So um, with the car, uh, you normally have like well, everyone knows the horsepower ratings, right? Like it's it's something that's used to advertise the the car. Um, so obviously you're not using 100% of that horsepower when you're driving along the highway. The the numbers I took were uh, basically, it's the same equations that govern speed of cycling. So this part of the, the calculation was actually pretty straightforward, but I took a car that was about 1,500 kilograms or 3,200 or 3,400 pounds, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, the CRR was about 0.01, which is a lot higher than cycling, but you're also on a much, much larger tire. So okay. there's, uh, there's trade offs there. And then the interesting part, or at least for me, the interesting part, the the drag coefficient and the area, they're usually broken down separately. And this actually kind of uh, highlights a pet peeve of mine that I'll get to in a second. But um, the CD value is about 0. 0.23 to 0. 0.28 um, for most cars. I would say 0. 0.3 is getting a bit high, but 0. 0.23 is definitely on the low end. Okay. Um, But we normally talk about like a combined CDA with cyclists and we have 0.23 overall. Well, we have a frontal area of about two meters on a car. So when you multiply that together, it's actually the CDA value is like 0.6, somewhere around there.
0: So cars are bigger, but they're they're, they're more aerodynamically shaped is what you're telling us.
1: Basically, yeah. It turns out when you've got uh, some engineers backing you and you don't... (laughs) deal with a stick figure, uh, aerodynamics. <laughs> with, with moving
0: limbs. Yeah. With moving limbs. Yeah. Uh,
1: and there's a lot of effort going into improving this right now. Cause it's, it's one of the biggest components, obviously. And sure. I mean, people, while well, you look back since, uh, I guess the thirties, when you'd have those like super streamlined cars, um, there wasn't any real science that went to that. That was mostly the eyeball wind tunnel. So I think, uh, <laughs> yep.
0: This is pre pre slow twitch though, right?
1: I was going to say yeah, it would have been it would have been great, very fast on slow twitch, but maybe not in real life. <laughs> yep. Uh so anyway, that kind of evolved, and then we went through uh a couple interesting periods in the the 70s and 80s when aerodynamics didn't really come into to play when we had box-shaped vehicles going around. Uh the 90s were kind of I forget the term for this, but there was this kind of soft period of design where everything became basically like if you imagine blowing a car up like if it were rubber blowing a car from the inside out that's what the 90s kind of did where it would just round all the edges and like the uh, the ford taurus is the car that comes to mind there where i was gonna was ask you for an
0: example yeah but okay i can picture the taurus yeah yeah
1: yeah so it was, it was not a particularly good era of vehicle design but they were starting to focus on aerodynamics and now i would say that uh still a major component is the style, but aerodynamics are playing such a huge role because people are fighting for the smallest little bit of fuel economy or EV performance. So anyway, the uh, the CDA value is somewhere around 0. 0.6, give or take, depending on the vehicle. Um, obviously, okay. small vehicles will have a, uh, a lower area, and then large vehicles will have a higher frontal area. What drives me nuts is when people relate the CD value to the frontal area. So I remember seeing this article and it just kind of, it highlights how aerodynamics are maybe not still fully accessible to people, but, uh, someone commenting how, um, a Lamborghini has, uh, they managed such a low CD value by reducing the frontal area and they're not related. They're multiplied together. But anyway, that's, that's something that a lot of people, I would say most of our listeners would understand, but, um, but it, it kind of uh, probably goes beyond a lot of what people understand about aerodynamics. So.
0: Sure. Yeah. Just as a primer CD has to do with shape and surface more than, more, yeah, and yeah, it has nothing to do with that frontal area. Yeah, exactly.
1: So. Uh, but let's get to the numbers where it gets a little bit more interesting. So a car traveling 100 kilometers an hour with those numbers I mentioned, um, the rolling resistance would be about 115 newtons and the aerodynamic drag would be about 260 newtons. Um, so that's, uh, well, when you think about it, like 10 newtons per kilogram, it's not huge forces that you're dealing with, but you're pushing it quite fast. So hundred kilometers an hour. And then the, uh, the, 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 power required goes up with the cube of speed, um, at least for aerodynamic drag. So, okay, yep. um, so that, uh, that turns into about 11 kilowatts or 14 horsepower to, to drive along at kind of highway speed, let's say. Mm-hmm. So when next time you buy a car that's three hundred horsepower, remember that to drive at highway speed, you need about fourteen or fifteen. Um, <laughs> wow, that's that's much much lower than I
0: than I would have thought. Actually, it's I guess it's when you're you're accelerating that you're really yeah. using that horsepower.
1: Yeah, you don't want to have a car that. Uh, will top out at 100 kilometers an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and then you hit a hill and then you're doomed? Yes, exactly. And yeah, even though in Toronto that might be totally sufficient, 100 kilometers an hour is not attainable on any highway, but uh, <laughs> at least not during rush hour. Um, <laughs> yep. wow. But uh, yeah, so that, that gives us kind of a, a ballpark for mm-hmm. how much how much power it actually takes to, to move a vehicle. So the acceleration is lim- one of the limiting factors and then hill climbing is the other. Uh, and anyone who's run up a hill really knows that like your speed drops quickly and it takes a lot more effort to, uh, to go up there. For sure. Road. So air conditioning systems this is where it gets a little bit harder to predict because um, there's a lot of a lot of variables that go into this but a typical system I would say is between 1500 and 3000 watts. So that oh, even in a car huh? Yeah so cars are they're, not really well-designed. Like a house is, uh, well, I sh- shouldn't say that. They're optimized for something different than... Right, they're not super well-insulated, I guess. Exactly. You're, yeah. you're in a tin can that has excellent convection on the outside because you've got air flowing around quite quite quickly. Uh, you've got all this exposed area with the glass. Um, so it's just, it's really not meant to hold in heat. Yeah, um, it's a greenhouse on wheels, basically. Yeah, so. yeah. And yeah, especially in the sun, like you're, you're fighting solar radiation on top of everything else. So what that works out to, if you're traveling at 100 kilometers an hour, an additional two horsepower uh, would be the equivalent of a 0.11 increase in your CDA. OK, now
0: we're co- now we're cooking. OK, yeah. so so long as so long as opening your windows is less than that, I guess, it, it, or mucks up your CDA by less than that. Then windows are the way to go, provided you're getting the same cooling effect. Yeah. Uh, but if it's more than then the air conditioner is the winner in this competition, I suppose.
1: Yeah. And so that was only with two horsepower, which is probably a very small air conditioning system. If you're looking at okay. about six horsepower, uh, it's a point three five CDA which is basically like an extra 50% of drag. Uh, so it's, it's pretty high. Um, so it's, it's a, yeah, I was surprised when I saw these numbers. Um, and obviously it'll depend on the speed you're going. So I had 100 kilometers an hour. Um, if you happen to be traveling at 140 kilometers an hour, the difference in uh, CDA at the low end for two horsepower is 004 and then 0.13 for the the high end. So, mm-hmm. as you're going faster, because of that cubic relationship, the the proportion that goes into the aerodynamics is uh, is quite a bit uh, quite a bit higher. So,
0: yeah, the proportion of power, of mechanical power input from your engine, you mean? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So the other extreme, if you're going 60 kilometers an hour, um, the difference in CDA for two horsepower is. <laughs> Almost your entire aerodynamic drag. So, <laughs> if you were to have a parachute out behind your car, that would be about the equivalent of putting on the air. Wow. Parachute. Okay. So,
0: so do we know how much uh, how much opening the windows affects your CDA?
1: So that's that's a good question. That's where the the data are a little bit uh, weak. I would say, but there's the the, num- the numbers I could find were, for, <laughs> I apologize for this, but a Chrysler Sebring, uh, <laughs> there was only a comparison between a hardtop version and a convertible. And that's not a convertible with the top down. I think it's a convertible with the top up. But it gives you an idea of kind of the impact there. And the the CD value went from 0.36 to 0.32. So you're really only looking at it maybe on the high end of 0.1. And that's the very high end for going to a a pretty disturbed aerodynamic condition. Mm -hmm. So at 100 kilometers an hour, um, it's almost always better to have the the windows down. But uh, yeah, it's all personal preference as well. And this is with it blasting full. So the other, the other thing is like, you don't need to have it on a hundred percent all the time. You can have reduced cooling just to keep yourself comfortable right. and not frozen.
0: Right. And then there's also, you know, non-aerodynamic and thermal considerations, like you can't hear your passengers with the windows down. An hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, So there's, there are other advantages to having the AC going beyond, you know, yeah, the thermal comfort of it.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, definitely an interesting question. I've wondered it myself, never really dug into it. For sure, uh, that was a bit of a
0: departure, and uh, it was a question that I asked, and I'm really, I'm really happy to know the answer. And so now, when my kids tell me to roll up the windows on the highway, I'm like, no, this is more efficient. <laughs> so, uh, and I'll, I'll reference Andrew when I when I tell them that. Perfect. And when I can't hear what they're saying, that might be oh, I don't know. Sometimes that's a curse and a blessing. Sorry, guys, can't hear you. The windows are down. Um, so on the, on the endurance sports side of things, so while I'm not, I haven't been podcasting, I've been, uh, you know, compulsively buying new triathlon and, and cycling stuff. So I, uh, I'm, I'm working on, uh, listeners on a couple of, uh, sort of, you know, here my, here are my first impressions of some, of some gadgets. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a teaser today. Uh, I, I picked up the newest Garmin wearable, the 955 Solar, just because, of course, it has to be the Solar, just because I'm curious what the Solar is like. For now, it's very underwhelming, and I, I think the Solar function itself is, uh, is an interesting use case. I mean, actually, it's it's a pretty niche use case. I think it's only really useful if you're going out there for a real long time, because, you know, I find charging my watch not that onerous, and the Solar doesn't actually add very much to it from from my very um, you know, very limited exp- experiments. But the one thing that this watch totally, totally nails or what Garmin nailed with a 955 is their new optical sensor. Um, again, I've only had about a week and a half uh, worth of experience with this watch. But uh, today I ran with it and I did an interval workout and I had my 9:45 on my on my right wrist and my 9:55 on my left wrist, and the 9:45 was paired to a Polar H9, which in my uh, my experience is kind of like one of the one of the gold standard straps out there, and they were they were spot on. And I was I was running hard, I was walking, I was running easy, and uh, they the uh, the optical sensor I haven't compared them in in great detail, but when I took glances, they were within a couple of beats. And I've never seen an optical sensor get even close to that kind of accuracy on, on any of Garmin's previous devices. So that's that's a real uh, a real win.
1: First off, I was wondering, did anyone confuse you for DC Rainmaker for right <laughs> no. <the>, for <laughs> no, devices I, that are? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I also had like two foot pods. Like I had my my Strata on one foot and my, uh, um, uh, just like uh, the the Garmin Temp. I don't know the temperature sensor that sits on your foot on my other. So I was fully instrumented. It was a, it was an interesting, uh, interesting operation, but no.
1: That is no that is very interesting though, that uh, the, the quality of the signal has improved so much because a lot of it. Um, I mean, when you look at uh, traditional heart rate monitors, it's a pretty clean electrical signal that you're getting. I don't know the, the details of the signal processing, but obviously people have more or less cracked it. There's not, not too yeah. many issues there. Uh, But optical, um, as long as you're, well, not even that, but uh, I was going to say as long as you're tight enough to the skin, but if you go too tight, then you start to restrict blood flow, which um, I can't remember who it was that we had, but uh, way back in the days when I was more involved, um, uh, he was saying that the the bending of your wrist when you're on your bike, if you're using a wrist-based optical heart rate, monitor uh, that can restrict blood flow which interferes with the signal which reduces the accuracy um, so there's yeah huge huge issues and the only optical sensor that I've had any real luck with was actually uh, was the the whoop sensor uh, mm-hmm. which on your wrist I didn't find was particular it wasn't good nor bad it was just kind of middle of the road it was kind of performing the way other, others would but I had a bicep band for it and that seemed to Really improve the uh, the accuracy the the readings. So um, yeah, but it is interesting. Like it, it comes down to signal processing. How good can we get with signal processing for uh, basically a lightweight and efficient package? Because um, you could throw a ton of computer horsepower at it, but then uh, but then you're carrying around a giant battery.
0: That's right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I remember being super excited about these things because you know, in my capacity as a coach, I've um heart rate straps for a lot of people. Like the chest straps are deal breakers. Uh, a lot of people with sensitive skin or with what you know, other yeah, usually it's sensitive skin. Um, they they get pretty badly cut up. I've coached folks who, who would just get these welts and be like, I can't. I know you want my heart rate data, but I'm not wearing this thing because it, it keeps cutting me. And I'm like, yeah, of course you shouldn't. Uh, here's this amazing new invention where you could just it's it's built into your watch. But I remember the very first one i tried it was a um i forget the company name they, they were making them um and uh there was it was a it was just a like a watch strap but all it did was heart rate and it was worse than a run random number generator it was it was basically a poor proxy for a cadence sensor because that's all it picked up it picked up cadence as opposed to which is a common issue with heart rate straps it picked up cadence instead of heart rate and it was completely worthless and then i think the seventh the garmin 735 was okay it was Probably fifty fifty for me, and then the nine forty five, which was the the next one I had. The nine thirty five, I don't remember. I think I forget which sensor it had. The nine forty five had the had the next generation of sensor, and it was much better, but it was still not anywhere near one hundred percent. But the nine fifty five so far, or at least the sensor in it, and I believe it's the same sensor as the seven forty five, um, and a bunch of their other products. I think the latest Phoenix products have them too. Um, so far, it's been I've been very very impressed with it.
1: That that really is the holy grail. Like if you can do accurate optical, accurate and reliable optical heart rate monitoring, because um, I, I don't hate a strap, but it is a pain because especially mm-hmm. when you go for longer runs or things like that, I always find it slides down when you get sweaty and like it's, Yeah, uh, it's got to be
0: snug enough that it doesn't do that. In which case, you can always feel it, especially if you're working hard. Yeah, it's yeah. It's it's not the best, and I mean this is, folks. Obviously, this is n equals one. Um, uh, usually, chest straps are not very individual, but um, but uh, optical sensors are. It depends on you know your your uh, skin tone and you kind of like your Chewbacca level. Yeah. Um, and, and it was like so so it does it does you know individual results may vary. But for me, I've had bad. You know, I haven't been one of the people for whom optical sensors in the past have worked very well and this sensor so far is uh, is knocking it out of the park yeah
1: yeah it's uh, it just comes down to again signal processing so what mm-hmm. literally gets in the way of getting that good uh, reflection from the the blood uh,
0: interestingly too one of the one of the drawbacks of uh, optical versus uh, you know like ecg style straps uh, was in the past lag because there was the signal processing took some time to to um clearly identify a change in heart rate so when, when intensity changes and again very anecdotally and, and just based on glancing at my <laughs> my left and my right wrists the uh, the speed with which the the chest strap and the optical sensor picked up the changes in my heart rate um, they were pretty close like there wasn't I could not see a lot of lag from the optical sensor which is yeah, that that almost almost certainly is an op, is a signal processing uh, you know feature of the new garmin.
1: Yeah, well, I would I would expect that to continue improving, um, not, you know, not within the next month or two, necessarily, but just as time goes by, we will get better processing these kind of signals. There's a lot of research literature that uh, that goes out towards this. Um, there's a lot of proprietary stuff as well. I know that Garmin has a, a team of people working on all their algorithms. Uh, and well, they probably, bought First Beat, right? Like, yeah, uh, I don't know, true. a year
0: yeah. ago or something. So First Beat does all their algorithm. And so actually First Beat is, is what packs a lot of the, you know, the the, the training readiness and other, you know, these ten, training tangent. Metrics into the new Garmin. So I'm struggling with that word. Um, which sort of work? Uh, I haven't had the watch long enough to really to really uh, comment on it. But I've railed against Garmin's kind of like tra- training stress and training readiness and all that stuff in the f- in the past because it's been. It's been worse than useless because it's been like actually harmful in times because it would, it would give you really bad advice. So I'm very curious to see how far they've come with with the better sensor, first of all. Um, and also, you know, as algorithms improve over time, I'm curious to see if they're getting closer to, you know, my, my lived experience and then my experience with like uh, my aura ring or my... You know my my hrv for training or my kind of like subjective stuff so i'm curious i'll I'll report on that once i have a little bit more data um but it's they're they're working on it which is cool so uh we'll, we'll see what happens but right now also you know, as, as good as that optical sensor is, the watch is full of bugs. So like some of the coolest features, they don't really work very well or they're annoying. So, you know, in terms of like a functional watch, my my three-year-old 945 right now is is better because it, it just does what it's supposed to do. Whereas the 955 is cool and it looks prettier. The displays are better, but like sometimes it'll freeze and other times it'll... You know, it just like weird stuff will happen to it, which I'm sure Garmin will fix over time with firmware updates. But right now it's kind of like, I would say, you know, 90% baked.
1: Well, you see that happening a lot more now with products all the way from the automotive industry to to sports tech where they're released Mm -hmm. or even video games now are released before they're finished, Um, which is, I think, a little bit of just this incentive to be first to market and to beat other people. So they're kind of taking a hit. Like it's, it's this, uh, compromise, like how, you know, how baked is your product before you put it out there? Has yeah. it, uh, <laughs> and how it...
0: patient is your audience, right? Like, uh, how much, how much are you willing to put up with it? I'm, I'm willing to put up with, with a fair bit because I kind of, I kind of, I can kind of see what's coming. But if I was, you know, a first time Garmin buyer, I'd be like, what the heck is this? Because mm-hmm. Garmin, one of the things that, that Garmin did really well versus other products that I've tried in the past is that their stuff worked. You know, it was reliable and you could count on it. And this watch, I think I would say like, and I was, I was an early adopter for pretty much everything that came out from the 910 onwards in the, in the Forerunner multi-sport. I had the 910, 920, 735, 935, 945, now 955. The only thing I, I think I missed one watch in the whole like lineup. Um, and this was the least from, from memory, this was the least ready one but uh, it also has maybe the, the most potential. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, it's a double-edged sword there.
1: It is. Yeah. And it, it also like looking at, we have non-critical uses for this, but if you look at the medical industry, for example, like it has to work first time. So yeah, it, it entirely depends on your audience. And I think triathletes in general are pretty accepting of this stuff. They're willing to be the first adopters and this is the price you pay as a first adopter. Yeah. And uh, I know we've railed on Garmin in the past for some of their, their metrics, uh, but the good thing I will say for them is they're out there collecting data by by rolling out these features. They're now starting to get information about why it does work or it doesn't work, and they're getting mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands or millions of people using these sensors, and they can scrape all that data, um, which, again, people have privacy issues with that potentially, but if an anonymized data point on a graph, I don't really care all that much. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's, it's one way to advance the science is just get lots of samples and they're doing that. So even though they may release things that aren't fully finished, um, they're, they're advancing the technology.
0: Yeah. Okay. One last thing I'll say about this, this garment and then, uh, and then we can move on. Um, I actually went swimming, which is also really you know <laughs> rare for me, but I, I swam in Lake Ontario, which was, it's finally getting warm enough for even a wimp like me to swim in. And, um, I'd like to think I was swimming pretty straight because I was like, you know, pegging the buoys pretty well and the swim track, I've never seen such a clean swim track. So I know they added an extra, yeah, they added an extra uh, band, I think to their GPS array, which obviously like eats more battery, but, uh, Or maybe they're they're working on again signal processing of the GPS track when when you select open water, understanding that you know your watch only sees the satellites for a brief portion of your stroke. But I've never seen such clean lines. So maybe they're lying to me, but uh, but it it definitely looks pretty on uh, on Training Peaks the way that uh, the new Garmin operates.
1: So that actually reminds me, um, there was a really really neat product that uh, that I tried out a few years ago as a Kickstarter. And I've still got it. I haven't used it recently, but it's called the Platysense Marlin. And hmm, yep, yep. Uh, the idea is you hook onto the back of your goggle strap so that the GPS is always out of the yep. water. And effectively, you're you know the same, possibly better level of resolution than you get with a watch uh, that's on your wrist and kind of flying around that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neat thing about this is that it would actually tell you through a bone conduction microphone that you tuck under your goggle strap. It would tell mm. you your pace. You could set up waypoints. It would tell you which direction you need to go. Oh, cool! Um, so, really cool product. And uh, it looks like uh, I hadn't heard much about the company or hadn't looked into it in a while. Um, so they're still in business, uh, which is great. So they've got um, they've got uh, the product for about one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, well it looks like they've got an optical heart rate sensor as well. I'm doing <laughs> this on the fly, so I don't know anything <laughs> about it. I uh, haven't looked yeah. at that in a while, but I do know that the first generation of the product, which is usually the the most questionable in terms of quality and bakedness, um, mm-hmm. I was very impressed with it. So if you want yeah. something that's accurate for swimming and can give you live feedback, and that's the other problem. You can't look at your watch, right? You, that's right. Without interrupting yeah. your stroke. Um, not, not in any practical way, yeah. Yeah, so this would actually give you probably distance, direction. You can set up waypoints, so you can just, if you're doing like a, you know, a long distance swim, you could set up a couple different... Uh, mm-hmm. GPS points and it'll just guide you to that. So very cool Sweet. product. Um, so I'd recommend people check that out if they're interested in something that's improved their swimming.
0: We should get them on the show. Um, but it was interesting that you say about the swim cap because I remember the first generation of like multisport GPSs. I think like the 310 or some or whatever Garmin that was. The recommendation from the or like the hack from the the community was to put it in your swim cap rather oh, than where, every time, time rest- I heard
1: of that I'm paranoid about dropping things in the water and every time yeah. I heard that thinking okay. like. Yeah, you're gonna get clocked in the head during a race. Well, maybe.
0: And then (laughs) lose lose your five hundred dollar garment. Yeah. 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 Drag. Um okay, let's uh let's cover one more thing. Uh that uh that has been making waves in the uh the cycling Instagram meme world. Um and I want to hear your thoughts on this one, Andrew. And that is the new uh the new specialized uh Aero TT helmet, but even more so than the helmet, the the accessory that we've been seeing folks, uh, the the time trial sponsored time trialists wear on their face.
1: Yes, the the sock, Yeah, stock. <laughs> um, yeah I, this is interesting. I don't know all the details behind the development. Obviously, um, I don't know a lot of the details behind the the development, which is a less obvious statement to make, uh, but. I think that, uh, from what I've read, the, the goal with this was actually, or the argument is that the sock helps to position the helmet. So we've talked about this before. Uh, I think we have, but helmet position plays a big role. So For sure. you want to have your helmet integrated with your, your body and how do you keep it in the right place? Like it, it gets sweaty, it slides down, it, uh, it gets adjusted. Uh, your head position may change slightly and this doesn't really fix that, but, uh, I think the idea with this is the sock keeps the helmet in the right location. So, um, so
0: even if the, if, I mean, I haven't had my helmet slide around too much, like when it's properly, you know, tensioned and, and it might be more than I just get
1: fidgety when I'm riding. So, yeah. And I think probably oh, maybe your health, of, yeah, it doesn't fit properly. <laughs> that's something you don't want to find out after the fact that oh, that no. was the wrong sized
0: helmet. Huh. That's that's interesting because I, I I looked at this thing and I, and, uh, I was like, what is it, is it, is this for people with really you know sticky outy ears to keep them in line so that you don't have you don't have ear drag contributing to your your formula? But I couldn't you know kind of for my armchair aerodynamicist. Uh, spot, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't come up with a, a compelling reason why something like this would exist.
1: So I wonder if this is the case where they came up with this and then realized it ran afoul of UCI rules. And then they said, oh, we need to justify this, where this is not a fairing. This is not a, a piece of clothing that modifies the shape of your body. This is actually something that, I don't know, holds the helmet in place. So <laughs> it's an external
0: helmet liner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so one of the other arguments, and this is where it's really dancing on the, well, I mean, it's over the intent of the rules, but just on the the wording of the rules, um, but basically streamlining your head. Hmm. So if it's squishing down your hair, um, and I know there's that, uh, the, um, the story that probably a lot of people have heard about with, um, uh, with Laurent Vignon, uh, losing the, the. Tour France time trial, because he wasn't wearing a helmet. This is when Greg Lamont was uh, one of the first people out there with aero bars and an aero helmet. And yeah. Fignon, um, this is in 89, I think, 88, 89, somewhere around there. And helmets weren't required, which still boggles my mind, but that's another point. Yeah. Um, but his his hair purportedly cost him the win, because I think he lost by six seconds. But he so, looked
0: really good losing, though.
1: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, bud. Uh, so if you're, if you're able to improve the aerodynamics inside the helmet, I think is a justification. So now Mm -hmm. you've got better, uh, better airflow when it goes through the vents, through, you know, any leakage around your, your head. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it does make me wonder though, like why, why does need to be a lot of air there um, so cooling would be one thing but now you're putting an insulating layer on yourself yeah right so and it seems to be self-defeating in that, in that yeah sense. Um, the argument about shaping your body um, <laughs> if you have something too tight around your neck obviously that's going to cause other issues yeah um, so I don't fully get it uh, the, the positioning is maybe the one thing that I can buy where Maybe there's something that they just have the helmet shaped oddly, and they found that the only way it would sit on your head in the right position was was wearing this. But yeah,
0: it's uh, it's interesting. I don't. But don't you think that the outside shape, which is obviously what the air interacts with, and the inside shape are decoupled because of you know there's some thickness from
1: the from the EPS foam, you know? Well, yeah. So it could be, but I, I often find that uh, the way the helmets are designed, like I think a lot of age group riders uh, or some age group riders um, ride pretty upright and a lot of arrow helmets are kind of designed for that when you get into people who have a more aggressive position i find that i have to have um at least with some helmets i have to have them tipped way back on my head where basically my forehead's exposed uh which yeah i know it's not the safest thing i really shouldn't be doing but uh in the heat of the moment when you're like oh i could go faster just by tipping this back then i kind of make that uh Ill-fated argument for myself, I guess. But um, I remember that was the case
0: for long tail helmets, which were designed for a very low mm-hmm. front end. And if you were sitting upright and you wanted that tail still you know, interfacing nicely between the shoulder blades or with the with your yeah, upper back, yeah. you, then you needed to tilt it up to bring the tail down. So listeners, if you can imagine, you know, if you want to tuck that tail down uh, and your your head is like the pivot of the teeter-totter, you need, the front of that helmet needs to come up exposing the forehead, which is what you're describing, Andrew, which was, yeah, a little bit of a, uh, from a safety perspective, a bit of a questionable maneuver.
1: Yeah, so there's that component of things. There's like the, the safety of it. Uh, maybe it's just meant to be, Riding a little bit different on your head, that could be one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part that's probably more about the helmet is just the integration with your shoulders. So from what I've seen, it's mm-hmm. a it's got a cutout that's meant to sit very tightly on your shoulders. And mm-hmm. and this is this is something we've talked about, like how the helmet suits your body. Um, it's not necessarily that this helmet is faster than this other helmet. It's how does how does the contour how do the contours of your body match with the helmet. And I think that uh, maybe it keeps it from moving around a little bit more. Uh, maybe it helps smooth the air that would otherwise be making that transition over your neck into the, the back of your, or over your shoulders into the back of your neck. It could help with that. Um, but aerodynamics is full of these areas where a small upstream perturbation will create big downstream effects. So hmm. sometimes just controlling the airflow in an area that uh, is before a crucial area. So before your back, that could be another big role. So I don't have definite answers on this, but uh, these are just my guesses from an aerodynamic standpoint. You're just trying to smooth out the air beforehand, as opposed to getting messy, dirty air that goes to your back.
0: Listeners, here's a call out. If you know what the heck's going on with that helmet sock, please let us know because we're we're curious and we're we're kind of we kind of have some guesses. But uh, but it, it, I'd love to know what the what it, what it, and especially if you're uh, uh, an aerodynamicist for Specialized and you want to send us a note, <laughs> we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what the heck that thing's all about because you know the internet wants to know, including myself.
1: One thing I do know is it is a definite fashion faux pas. It
0: is <laughs> Yeah, maybe it was like a marketing move gone wrong, you know, like they were like we're going to have a helmet that, that looks like
1: Yeah, well, people well, are talking it about could it be so. uh it could be not gone wrong but gone perfectly where like yes, no it's bad ugly, publicity, but- right? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's true it is definitely attracting a lot of attention. Um yeah, and I think not since the the you know, the Pock Darth Vader helmet has have I seen a helmet take this much uh
1: attention. Oh. And that one is still very popular in certain circumstances. Like it's the great temper, on track. Yeah. yeah. It's just when like, it's a very high sensitivity to position. So if you can't hold your position, your drag goes yeah. up quite a bit. But, and uh, it's from
0: what I, yeah, from what I understand too, it's, it's, it's it's killer at very low yaws, which is why it works on track. So if you have a, a really calm day, it could work on TT as well. If you could, if you have the right, uh, yeah, if you can hold your head properly, but uh, yeah, for almost everybody else. And if you're willing to actually wear it. I would, I would totally wear that helmet. I think that I, I actually think that the, you know, the, the mushroom head is putting it my, nicely is uh <laughs> is a, is, is a, is a fun look, but uh, you know, hey, fashion is individual, right? It's in the eye of the beholder. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. What do we got? Are we, are we good here, Andrew? What do you think? I think that's enough for, uh for an, I've been thinking about kick at the can and uh, like I said listeners I'll have more updates on the, the 955 as I have more experience with it and hopefully somebody writes in and tells us what the heck's going on with that helmet
1: yeah I, I look forward to either being corrected about my guesses for aerodynamics or learning more about the helmet
0: <laughs> well there you go okay listeners thank you uh, thank you first of all for your patience with us as, uh, as we're on like a quasi summer vacation with, uh, with our episode release rate um hopefully you enjoyed this one. If you did, you know, as always give us a rating and a review. Um and uh we'll be back for more. We actually have some guests lined up uh for interviews, some some really interesting folks, both in uh, uh well in physiology, but also in uh in heat transfer in the endurance sport world. So uh and also an aerodynamics episode coming up. So I think we're gonna be covering all of our bases in the next uh, uh let's say month or month and a half. So uh we've got some good content coming up and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, everyone.